So today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. So while you're finding that spot in your Bibles, I'll tell you a story about me. My first time coming to Fort St. John, I think, was 15 years ago to date. My family and I would head up north for a, a hunting trip most years. So New Year's Day, Dad said, well, let's go across from the island to the mainland that day, because New Year's Day, people are going to be too tired from their uh, partying the night before to catch an early ferry, so there'd be lots of room. So he was right. We headed up here, and on one of those hunts we were on, we were out for a walk, and Dad had the gun. I was following along behind, trying to keep up. And so I'm wearing my early 2000s cargo pants. I got all the pockets in them. And so as we're walking, I see a cool rock. And so then I see some more cool rocks. And I'm lagging further and further behind, loading up my pockets. And further and further behind I get, eventually, Dad, my legs hurt. So he looks back, and my pockets are just bulged out to here with rocks. He says, well, take the rocks out of your pockets, boy. So we went through them, and I was disappointed because we had to pick only a few of the finest ones, but we will lighten the load, and I was able to keep up the pace, albeit with less cool rocks and a stern chastening from my father for my foolishness. This story isn't just a pointless tale of my childhood, but it does relate to the passage we'll be reading today about laying aside things that hinder us so that we may run the race of faith. So let's read Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 6 together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. In this passage, the author tells us how to live out our faith, and today we're going to be looking at three ways that he tells us to do that. One, lay aside every weight and sin. Two, look to Jesus for endurance. And three, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Now, at the beginning of this passage we read, it starts off with a therefore, which means because of the previous thing, so we need to look at the preceding chapter so that we're understanding the text correctly. Hebrews is an interesting book because we don't know exactly who wrote it, and it's been widely speculated over the centuries, but ultimately the author is the Holy Spirit. We see that it's primarily, primarily written to three categories of Hebrews. One would be the legalistic Jews who were still relying on ceremonies and sacrifices of the Old Testament to save them. Two would be Jews who were believers in Jesus as their Christ and Savior, so Christian. And thirdly, people who had the head knowledge of the gospel and believed in their minds that it was true, but they had no change of heart or, or lifestyle because their hearts had not been changed. So someone that says there's a believer, but there's no evidence by the way they live. This book of the Bible is written roughly 70 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, so 
it's by no means written to new believers. It says in chapter 5, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone again to teach you the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not spiritual. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. So some of these Hebrews being addressed were being very spiritually immature. It was at this time that the persecution of the Christian church was becoming severe. There were groups of Jews who were denying Christ as Lord and demoting him to status of angel to escape the persecution that comes from saying Christ is Lord. There were also those who were resorting to old ways and old sacrifices or legalism, trying to gain salvation through works instead of faith. This book addresses these issues. The previous chapter talks about the believers in the Bible that came before who lived by faith. And if you're not familiar with chapter 11, have a read. But it talks about how it was by faith that God-fearing people of the Old Testament obeyed God, conquered, overcame, and endured horrible sufferings. And all of these believed by faith in the Messiah that would come. We look back and we have faith in the finished work of Christ. And they look forward and died with the faith that Christ's work would be done. This brings us to our passage. In chapter 12, therefore this great cloud of witnesses is referring to all those who came before, those who lived and died in faith that God would send a Messiah. So the first section we want to look at is lay aside every weight. The beginning verse starts with an, ana an analogy of racing in Greek athletic competitions. In this, the author changes the focus from the Old Testament and relates it to the early church and the situation of that time. And he includes himself in the race by saying, we are surrounded. And for them to be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses is conveying a large number of people, like a great multitude. Not just like when you say, that's a great beard you have there, Corland. It is very nice, but we don't really use the word great in its correct context. The Greek word here means massive, powerful, or all-encompassing. These witnesses that are spoken of are, it's kind of a double meaning. The context of the analogy, the witnesses are spectators to the race. The modern equivalent would be like you sitting on the bleachers at the Pomeroy, cheering on the hockey players. You'd be a witness to that sport. Well, the Greek word used um, can mean witness, but it actually is the word from which we get martyrs. And a martyr is someone who has proved the strength and genuineness of their faith in Christ by undergoing a violent death. That's what a Christian martyr is. It's someone who has endured persecution and died for following Christ and showing faith by not wavering even unto death. <clears throat> so more importantly than just being a witness to the race that we are to run, these are witnesses to the power of Christ that sustain them through impossibly difficult trials and hardships that they faced. The fact that someone could endure or accomplish the things that the godly people of the Old Testament did is a testimony to the faith that they had and the power of the God that they served. What the author is not saying is that these are spectators cheering us on right now. We don't look to them for praise, but rather they are witnesses to the power and glory of God. So next is the preparations for the race. Ancient runners in athletic competitions are often used as a fitting way of describing the Christian faith. The competitive games were well known in Greece and would have been very familiar to the Hebrews. 
We know this because we've seen Paul use this example quite frequently in a few places in Corinthians, Timothy, and more places besides. In the races, the training was rigorous, the rewards were potentially great, and competitors had extreme discipline, and the competitions would be intense. Before the race, you'd want to get rid of everything that would weigh you down. You don't go racing in body armor, you'd want to shed that weight. So take the rocks out of your spiritual pockets. And bringing it back to the race of faith, these weights to lay aside are sin, the sin which clings so closely. The picture given here is of a runner being entangled or tripped up by extra loose-fitting garments clinging to him. The athlete needs to shed that which clings to him. It'd be like running, running around the track at the sports center in a bathrobe and winter boots. It might be warm and it might comfort for you for a time, but it's going to make you stumble. That's what it's like when we try to follow Jesus but can't let go of sin that we enjoy or the ways that bring temporary comfort, but they're actually causing us to stumble. And what does the Bible say about that? Mark 9:43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This is not literal and it's not supporting bodily mutilation, but it does show the severity and urgency to cut out things that cause us to sin. Are there things in our lives that we resort to for comfort but entangle us? Are we willing to cut these things out so that we can run the race without getting tangled up in things that the world idolizes? Idolatry is just valuing anything more than Jesus, and there's no shortage of rocks in my spiritual pockets to trip me up. Those things which we value more than running the race well, the things which weigh us down in the spiritual race and in obedience to God. So, we're entangled by sin. We don't want to let go of it. How do we say no? How do we shed that weight? And the answer is that we can't. In our own strength, we cannot. But in Western culture, we sure do try to do it ourselves. There's a whole tradition around it, in fact. It's called the New Year's Resolution. That's essentially what it is, isn't it? Trying to lay aside weight or sin. Resolutions started uh, thousands of years ago to appease false gods at the beginning of a season, promising good works for the coming year so their crops and lives would prosper. Just please make it a good year and I'll be good. That's works righteousness. Now a New Year's resolution is defined as a practice in which a person resolves to continue good practices, changes an undesired trait or behavior, accomplish a personal goal, or otherwise improve their behavior at the beginning of a calendar year. That's great. If it were that easy, we'd be perfect. Just decide to do better. The problem is that we're so entangled by our sin nature that any attempt to remove sin from our lives by our own power will fail. You might get rid of it for a time, but some other vice will always take its place because the heart has not been changed. Happy New Year's, eh? We're all broken. Sinners and our resolutions mean nothing. But thank God the gospel doesn't stop there. We keep on reading and we see that there is hope as we move on to the next section. Looking to Jesus for endurance. It's by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that we cast off our weights. We run the race with endurance. As we're commanded to look to Christ, the word we get for looking is not just to glance at something, but to consider attentively, to turn our gaze away from all else and fix our eyes attentively on something. 
Lost my spot, bear with me. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Think about what he went through to provide a way of salvation. We can rest in that we don't need to run this race so that we can be saved, but we run it because we are saved. By looking to Christ, we run with endurance. But enduring something implies that it's not always going to be easy. If you're living obediently to Christ and someone promises you that for following him you will surely be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, then that person is a wolf trying to ensnare you and you need to run the other way. We're told in just the last chapter, Hebrews 11, 36 through 38, that others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves on the earth. But it was by their faith in the coming Messiah that God gave them the grace to endure. So many of us have heard for 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. <clears throat> Heard me. The weaker we are, the more clearly God can be seen working through us. So we can rejoice that we are weak because God will give us the grace to endure the race. Pastor Andrew talked a number of weeks ago on Mission Sunday about uh, go, give, and pray, different ways that we can serve here where we are. So not everyone's race is going to look the same, but be faithful to what you've been given. It's a phrase, a phrase my wife's always chanting, be faithful to what you've been given. She'll be making supper, and the little baby is kicking her from inside, and the big baby's crawling on her outside, and I'm lamenting about how long and hard my day was. And Just be faithful to what you've been given, she keeps chanting. That's the race that God set before her, so yours is going to look a bit different, but run it with endurance. We look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Obviously, he took no pleasure in the crucifixion itself, but it was the joy in submitting himself to God and accomplishing God's plan for salvation. Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus said to his Father, Not my will, but yours be done. And for that plan, Jesus lived a sinless life. He endured mocking, torture, and ultimately death on the cross. And all that is the kind of death that we deserve. We should have the wrath of God poured out on us for every wrong thought and deed that we've ever done. Because God is just, but he's also merciful, and he provided a fitting sacrifice for us. His only son, Jesus, endured the worst things imaginable, and did so, it says, despising the shame. The whole purpose and method for crucifixion was to make it the most painful, public, and shameful way to be killed. Stripped naked, nailed up on a busy public road, flogged, beaten, and ultimately suffocating to death. And what was his response? He despised the shame. To despise is to disdain, to think nothing of it. To Jesus it was of no consequence. He was not ashamed. His Father's will now being complete in Jesus' death and resurrection, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In ancient times, the right hand was a position of power and authority, but also a position of submission to the higher authority. Remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? 
being left for dead in the earth, was brought out of the well, raised to power, second only to Potiphar, being sent by God to save the nations from famine. He was a foreshadowing of Christ. Joseph was at the right hand of Potiphar, subordinate to him, but reigning over the land with authority, and in a small way like our King Jesus, who is seated at the right hand in submission to God, but ruler and judge over all. So as we look to what Jesus went through, uh, the readers are told to consider what he's done when thinking of their own hardships. Consider, or the word like reckon up in a mathematical sense, counting the cost, to carefully weigh up the endurance of Christ. To endure something is not simply just to put up with it, but like the athlete, to calmly remain, not to flee, to persevere under misfortunes and trials, in the spiritual sense, to hold fast to one's faith. Jesus endured hostility from sinners, and that's what we're called to do. And it's Jesus who gives us strength so that we do not become weary and faint-hearted. As it says in verse 3, to be weary is to literally become sick. Does it ever happen? You're under so much stress or so tired that you physically become sick and faint. And to be faint means to become relaxed or enfeebled with exhaustion. That's a dangerous one, to be burnt out. I'm sure lots of you know what that's like. This is a hard-working town, and we know what it's like to become exhausted, but we don't want to become like that in our spiritual lives. We all go through dry seasons in our faith, and it's by the grace of God that we can come through that, but there's a danger in becoming faint or relaxed through exhaustion in your souls. As the strong, Strong's Dictionary puts it, to let one's guard down against sin. Verse 4 describes this well. It says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. There's another danger. If we forget the endurance of Christ, if we lose faith that his work is sufficient to save us, we may try to resort to works righteousness, resorting to the things which entangle us. We're to resist sin. And the word used for resist gives the imagery of putting up troops in line for battle to remain on guard. This is how we're to treat sin. Don't let your guard down. Don't become faint, letting that sin creep into your life. Letting in those idols that we may for a time take comfort in. I'm speaking to myself here as much as to anyone, but if your family needs a spiritual leader, don't plop in front of the TV. If your child needs attention, maybe all you want to do is go accomplish some project of your own. Maybe you go take that self-care that cultures use to rebrand laziness and selfishness. And not all of these things are necessarily sin in and of themselves, but most things can become sin when abused. Maybe there's something on the computer or your phone that you're having a hard time not going back to again and again for comfort. The list is endless. These sins which so easily ensnare us. Look to Christ and rely on Him for strength to resist. We're commanded to strive against sin and to combat the wandering or drifting away to things which ensnare us. <clears throat> the next section is, do not despise the Lord's discipline. We humans have a natural aversion to discipline. We don't like it, we don't want it, we forget why it's happening and maybe we just blame it on the devil or demons. But In our life group we discussed the phrase, everything happens for a reason, which is 
basically a secular spin-off of Father in Heaven, Thy will be done. And we discussed how if you tell someone who doesn't know why calamities befallen them, and you don't unpack why things happen, if you don't explain that God tests and disciplines his children, and he makes the unbeliever to realize they are broken in order to draw, him to them, draw them to himself. If we can't understand that the end goal of all things is to bring glory and praise to God, then to say everything happens for a reason and then walk away is not profitable. But here in verse 5, the author gives the explanation. Have you forgotten? He asks the rhetorical question. Don't you remember the exhortation? The word exhortation means two things, a calling or a summons to call someone to act, and it can also be a comfort or a consolation, which is a fitting used word to use when referring to the Word of God, because it's both. In this exhortation that speaks to you as sons, I think about that. God, the almighty creator of the universe, has made his will apparent to us. He's provided a means of salvation through his only son, Jesus, so that all who believe in him, confess him as Lord, repent, and turn aside from their sins are adopted as his children. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his own will. And then in verse 5 through 6, the author quotes this exhortation from Proverbs. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or depending on your translation, do not despise the chastening. And to be chastened means to be sternly corrected or punished. Don't hold it of no regard. Don't think little of it. Take it seriously and recognize that it could be for many reasons that you are being chastened. Maybe you're being disciplined for sin in your life or tested to show your faith in God or refined to be more holy. Remember, we don't get to be fast runners by reclining on a lazy boy eating junk food. It's the rigorous and painful exercise, training and disciplining oneself to be strong and fast. And the chastening is ultimately to God's glory. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will for those that love him. So take seriously this discipline, but do not be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. God disciplines the ones he loves. <clears throat> to discipline is to flog or either literally or figuratively with a whip or plague or calamity brought on by God to discipline and punish. You ever see a kid in a store and he's on the floor screaming and carrying on and the parents counting one, two, three, three and a half, and nothing happens after three, the child throws a tantrum, and you just wish someone would give them both a good scourging. But God's not like that parent. He's just. He's true to his word. He promises that he will discipline, and he follows through. Proverbs 13:24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates their son. Uh, don't misunderstand and all go get some rods and give your kids a good scourging after church. That's not what I'm saying, necessarily. But the essence of this is that a loving parent corrects sternly and often painfully the behavior of a disobedient child and trains them up rigorously in the way they should go. This is a picture that we are given to relate to how God chastens us. So as we enter a new year, this day of resolutions, if it's your intent to resolve to make things better in your own life, then you misunderstand the Bible and the, purple, and the purpose for hardships. 
Having your problems cured miraculously may be a way that God is glorified, but when you see someone with constant pain and hardships their whole lives, and they can rest in saying, Lord's will be done, that speaks volumes louder about where their faith is rooted than people wanting to exercise the gifts of the Spirit without ever showing the fruits. You will know them by their fruits, the Word says. So instead, walk in faith for what God has done in your life. By looking to Christ, resolve to flee temptation and rejoice that we have a just, loving, and merciful God who we can call Father, who loves us enough to discipline us and call us His children. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for this word, this call to action, this encouragement. Please give us the strength to endure the race, to lay aside these things which ensnare us. Thank you that you are faithful, you are just, and you are merciful. Thank you for coming into this world, Jesus, to pay a debt that we owe and could never pay. It's by your grace only that we can endure this race. In Jesus' name, amen.